0: Trip to Israel, like God's grace, we'll get to do again next year perhaps. But I remember we were on top of the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives proper, and we were walking down really the only road that goes down there, just going from one site to the next, seeing cool stuff. And our Israeli guide whispered over to me, spoke over to me, he said, You know, this is the path that Jesus would have taken. During Palm Sunday, when they threw down the palm fronds and all that. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. And I thought about it, it made perfect sense because it's a really narrow road. So you know it wasn't made for cars, it was too small for that. So it was an ancient road. Um, Oftentimes, roads were made just wide enough to get a donkey with a full load through. This road's a bit wider than that, so maybe it was a road big enough for carriages. But it's just cool to to go to places like that and see stuff like that. And we're in Matthew chapter 21 and this is culminating to Yeshua, to Jesus on Palm Sunday or the Hosannas or the triumphal entry or whatever you want to call it. When he came in riding on the donkey and everybody shouted out and they put palm fronds down. This is the chapter we're in. But before we talk about that specifically, I want to talk to you a little bit about the coming of the Messiah. Over the last few weeks, we looked at some prophecy concerning when he would come, what he would do when he was here, what he would be like. The rabbis talked a lot about the coming of the Messiah. It was one of the biggest hopes, if not the biggest hopes, in Jewish thought. But when you look at the passages of Scripture about the coming of the Messiah, they're not easy to make sense out of. Like there's a passage of Scripture that says the Messiah is going to die, and one that says he'll rule and reign forever. And the rabbis looked at that and said, how in the world could both happen at the same time? And not knowing what you and I know, they came up with their own conclusions. Like, ah, there will be two messiahs. One who'll die and one who will rule and reign. Because the one that dies is rejected. So they thought this had to be two messiahs. There was even one Jewish legend. It's more than a legend. It's written down that the Messiah who rules and reigns will resurrect from the dead the Messiah who dies. So in Jewish thought, there's a Messiah who's rejected, who dies and rises again. Very similar to what Christians believe about the Messiah and Messianic Jews. Well, how would the Messiah come? There's passages of Scripture that talk about that too. But again, hard to rectify. Let me give you two examples. This one's from Daniel chapter 7, and this is what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So they believe this referred to the Messiah, and rightly so, but it says he comes in the clouds of heaven. Now listen to this one from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So is he coming in the clouds or is he coming on a donkey? It's not the same thing. And so they try to understand how this could be. Well, here's how some rabbis rectified this. Let me just quote for you. If the Israelites are good, then he'll come with the clouds of heaven. But if not good, then riding upon a donkey. There's always this concept in Jewish thought about the coming of the Messiah being tied to the righteousness of the people. And that's another example of it. Well, let's say that was Jewish thought in the days of Jesus. I don't know how far back this thought goes. But obviously, they were talking about it. Now, with that in mind, listen to what Matthew 21 says. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, so that's the backside of the Mount of Olives, coming up, ready to go back down the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, when they're there, Jesus sent two disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs him, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's not coming on the clouds, so what does that mean? The disciples went and did as Jesus said, had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him, so he's in the middle of a big crowd, were shouting, a shouting crowd, entering Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who's this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was stirred up. Why? Well, because there's this parade of people coming in, shouting. But more than that, it's what they were shouting If we stopped there and you didn't know the history, you'd say, well, that's interesting. But it's a lot more than interesting. Here's what they were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So, what's significant about that, Steve? I still don't get it. Listen to what John Gill wrote. He's got a commentary in the Bible and his emphasis is Jewish culture and tradition. The John Gill commentary is free. You can get a copy of it with Esword. I'd encourage you to do so. A lot of cool stuff in it. Here's what he said about that phrase son of David. Nothing is more common in the Jewish writings than for the son of David to stand for the Messiah. So now you know what these people are saying. Here comes the Messiah, here comes the Messiah. They're entering Jerusalem. Here comes the Messiah. You think the high priests were thrilled to hear this? You think the authorities were thrilled to hear this? You think the Romans were thrilled to hear this? The priests were probably scared to death because that the Romans would hear it. Because the Messiah is supposed to be the ruler of Israel. Are you really saying the king of Israel is coming into Jerusalem on this donkey? What are you trying to do, get us killed? Oh, this was, uh, this was not a good thing. From the perspective of the secularist which was most of them. This was the cause of a riot. This could get the entire nation destroyed. But what if it is? Ooh, the goosebumps. The possibility. The potential. So he's calling him the son of David, which means the Messiah. And they're saying Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. That comes from Psalm 118. Let me read the psalm to you, or this piece of it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They were basically just quoting or paraphrasing that verse. But she said, Steve, I don't hear any hosanna in there because you didn't hear it in Hebrew. Listen to it in Hebrew, that piece. Ana Adonai Hoshiana. Hosheana, Hosanna. In Hebrew, it's the piece that says, save us. Hosanna. That's what save us is. Hosanna. So they're calling him the Messiah and asking him to save them. How prophetic is that, if they only had a clue. But even more than that, as I've pointed out to you in the past, and I've got the two words, the Hebrew words, one over the other. Let's put them up. Let's take a look. I want to show you something. You don't have to know Hebrew to see this. Hoshiana, so we left off the, the na part and just got the hoshia, hoshia part. This is the word Joshua or Yeshua. This is the word save or salvation. This is the same as this. 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 The word Joshua or Yeshua is virtually identical. It's built out of the word salvation. So, they're calling him the son of David, which means the Messiah. They're asking him to save them, and they're actually using his name, Yeshua. They spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, they knew. They didn't put two and two together because they used that word all the time. But I can see it. So, in a sense... Save us, Jesus! You're the Messiah! Save us, Jesus! That's not what they were saying, but that is what they were saying. Very interesting. I think it's cool that most of the time when the Scripture talks about salvation in the Old Testament, it uses the name Jesus. And Jewish people to this very day, if they're crying out to God for salvation, they're crying out to God for Jesus. But not really, but really, if you know what I mean. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means salvation or Jehovah saves. They're quoting the prophecy that named him and not even aware of doing so. So they're saying, save us, save us. From what? What do they want to be saved from? If you were to ask the guy yelling, save us, save us, what do you want him to save you from? Rome, what else? Can't you see what's going on? The First on their mind would have been political or social Salvation. They wanted to be delivered from their enemies, and I'm not going to debunk that. That's not a bad thing. That was a necessary thing. They were being horribly oppressed, and they were asking God to remove the oppression. That's good. That's necessary, but there was more that needed to be done. Before I kill myself and do a nosedive off the stage... Of course, we are recording it. That would get us $10,000 on America's Funniest Videos. Maybe I should have left it untied. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) So they wanted to, to have political salvation. They wanted to be delivered from their oppressors. That's good, that's righteous, that's noble. It's important, but it's not first. I'm sure they would have thought it was first. But God knows better. So what exactly else did they need to be saved from? A worse problem. What? So Jesus comes down the mountain. They're yelling, Hosanna. He enters the temple. Did you know the Romans had a garrison adjoined to the temple compound? So all this is going on inside of Rome. Probably they don't speak any Hebrew, but they're asking, what's going on? So later... When Jesus gets turned over to the Roman authorities, all this is going through their minds too. Remember, up on the cross, here's Jesus, king of the Jews. So they were technically executing a rebel. Now, they knew they really weren't. They knew it was all a show that the bad guys who were in authority wanted to turn Jesus over because they envied him and they were jealous of him and they hated him. But nevertheless, that was the judgment on the cross. Here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. So this concept, part of it, was him entering in right here. He enters the temple. Look what happened. So what's worse? What do they need to be saved from? Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Let me show you where most archaeologists think that happens. Okay? will give you a little look here. This, See this big thing here? This was a big covered patio type of thing. And this is where they think the buying and the selling and all that took place. So this is the temple model. This would be the eastern gate. This would be the Mount of Olives. They would have gone down here, up in here, maybe on top of the wall there, gone in there, and that's where all that stuff might have happened. This was the temple proper. This is the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed on the outskirts of the area. There would have been a wall probably right here. Inside, only Israelites can enter. On that wall, it would have said, no Gentile is allowed pass this wall upon pains of death. Actually found a stone with that inscription on it. it sits in the temple, not in the temple, in the museum in uh, Turkey. They got it, and it was there, and I got to see it. It's way cool. Then inside, closer up in here, the, only the men could go. and then in, So that would have been the court of the women. And then inside, only the priest. And then inside that, only the high priest once a year. Boom, 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 boom. So overthrowing of the money changers right in there. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. While he's chasing them out and flipping over their tables and chewing them out, this is what he yells at them. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. They weren't robbers because they were selling stuff. They were robbers because they were ripping people off. People are supposed to come here to pray. Instead, they come here and get ripped off by you guys. How do you pray? Well, you bring an offering. Well, we just happen to have the only authorized offerings right here. You know, you get a pigeon in Bethlehem, it'll cost you a shekel. Here, they're 50 shekels. I'm just throwing out numbers. Just to give you an idea. They had to do it. It was a rip-off. And so they inhibited prayer and gave people bad taste in their mouth if they could afford to pray. Bad, 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 bad. Jesus was incensed. So, what was their problem? Well, the leadership was separated from God. Most of the people were too, but the leaders were leading the way. They lost their connection with God. God was their money. They valued income more than they valued a relationship with God. This is a bigger problem than Rome. You know, Rome kills you. Where are you going after that? (laughs) That's a bigger question. Having a relationship with God is more important than having a happy and smooth political life. Worship became an opportunity for wealth and for thievery. And from God's perspective, a much bigger problem than the Romans. They needed to be set right with God. Their relationship with God needed to be fixed. Later, we can deal with Rome. First things first. So, Jesus says, this house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, you've made it a den of thieves but he was quoting a passage of Scripture. And that passage of Scripture harkened back to the previous temple where something similar happened. Now, in the days of the previous temple, Babylon, uh, people had this idea. Babylon will never conquer Jerusalem because the temple's here. And God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. It's a holy temple, and the God of the universe is the most powerful God. So we can sin all we want live an evil lifestyle, and just claim the temple. You know? Kind of like safe zone. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you can't touch me. We're in the temple. That's what they thought. So here's what Jeremiah the prophet, the temple prophet, the prophet who was excommunicated from the temple and imprisoned, the prophet who saw the destruction of that temple and the people exported This is what he said before any of that happened. Behold, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal? Walk after other gods that you've not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, he's speaking for the Lord, and say, we are delivered that we may do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus quoted from this passage of Scripture. What happened next? That temple was destroyed. So if you knew the Scriptures well and Jesus quoted that passage of Scripture, what was the lesson? If that temple can be destroyed, so can this one. If their behavior wasn't tolerated, neither will yours be. If they stole and the temple was destroyed, you're stealing guess what? Your temple will be destroyed too. Boy, Jesus, man, he did not mince words. He got up there and he preached. So what was their big problem? They turned away from God. They defiled the temple. And the temple was destroyed. Not that day. After this big event, some years later. But listen to this passage of Scripture. Jesus was on top of the Mount of Olives when he gave this sermon. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large and beautiful stones these buildings have. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these large buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another that will not be thrown down or torn down. Large buildings. Yeah, I've told you this several times. It comes up. The temple in Jerusalem was one of, I would call it, the wonders of the world. It was known to be one of the greatest buildings and temples in the world. And you know how famous the Romans were for their temples and buildings. It was right up there, superior to places like the Acropolis and the Parthenon. This was the temple in Jerusalem. Everybody knew about it. And it was some bragging rights for Israel. Little tiny Israel. Israel. We've got a building that competes with is even superior to the ones in Greece and Rome. What do you think, Rabbi? Isn't this awesome? Jesus said, not so much. It's all going to be torn down. And the verbiage he used, not one stone here will be left on another that will not be torn down. Let me show you a picture. A few years back, as they're excavating the Temple Mount area, by the way, that's Boaz, our Israeli guide. We tag teamed the teaching. He's an amazing, brilliant man, knows so much. But anyway, as they're excavating the Temple area, you, if you were to see the picture over here, you would see part of the wall, the retaining wall, and up over that wall, the Temple Mount. So we're at the bottom of the Temple Mount here, on the southeastern corner. All right? That's where we're at. And they dug dirt, and look what they found right here. You see how the, this pavement is like totally just crushed in? Because the Roman soldiers, when they were on top, pushed the stones off the temple mount, and they crashed with such force that they broke the pavement. This would be an example of one of the stones that was torn off and thrown down. They found this down there. So that would be one of the stones that crashed the... And crush the street. Not one stone will be left standing that's not thrown down or torn down. They were literally torn down and thrown off the wall. Hundred plus feet, <laughs> smashing the street. This stone is really cool. We're going to focus in on this little piece right here. You see the Hebrew writing right there? So they dug this up, and what that inscription says is to the place of the blowing of the shofar. So the shofar was blown on the temple mount for various things, to signal the Sabbath, for example. And they found the stone that was from the top that gave the direction to the place of the blowing of the shofar. Really cool. And that stone, they have a replica sitting down there for us to see when you walk around, and the originals in the Israel Museum. That was one of the stones that Jesus prophesied over. He specifically said, not one stone will be left standing That will not be torn down. Boy, did they tear it down. So the temple was destroyed. Hasn't been rebuilt in some 2,000 years. I believe it will be rebuilt again. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Though the temple was destroyed, something better came about. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know, there was a time where God would actually visit this temple. His glory would radiate through the temple. He came in human form in the body of Yeshua to that temple. That was a glorious temple. But he says his Holy Spirit resides inside each and every one of his believers. We are a temple. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. We are the temple of God. So we don't need a temple. We are the temple. We're not only the temple, we're also the priests. Doesn't the scripture say you'll be a kingdom of priests? So we're the temple, we're the priests, and guess what? We're also the sacrifices. So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, Romans 12, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God, dedicated to His service and pleasing to Him. Wow, that's a life verse right there. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you'll be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to him and is perfect. You know, if you're a Bible underliner or a note taker, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. Let me tell you what I believe. And it's not my opinion. I believe this to be the gospel, the very words of God. This is not optional for any believer. This isn't, well, some of us will and some of us won't. This is our calling. Some of us are faithful and trying and some of us are not faithful and trying but this is for all of us. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. Jesus offered himself for you. And so he asks us to offer ourselves for him. He died for us that we might live for him. Please join me in prayer. Lord, please give us the desire, the passion, the will, the energy to make that our life's verse. May none of us pursue pleasing you as an option, but as our goal to be thankful for what you've done for us. Show us areas of our lives that are not pleasing to you, Lord, and give us the desire and the passion to change them. And, Lord, for my friends, my family, people listening in who may not be friends or family yet, who don't know you, may they understand the great sacrifice Jesus made for us. May they choose to be redeemed, saved from their sin, and join in service to you. If there's anything we can do, Lord, To help spread the gospel, help us to do it. And help us to live it. For it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.